This is Something to Carp About, the podcast that brings Carpinteria California to you. I'm your host, Dennis Mitchell, and together we'll explore the town's attractions and issues. Guacamole! We're the besties. I'm telling you about my favorite food today. Check it out. Guacamole. We eat it every day. Guacamole. In every The California Avocado Festival normally takes place in Carpinteria around the first weekend of October, but it's been on hold the past couple of years because of COVID. It comes roaring back in 2022 with the whole community ready to wallow in guacamole. To get the lowdown on the 36th annual festival, I spoke with organizer and man about town, Mike Lozaro. Mike, congratulations on the return of the festival. It's hard to believe it's been three years since we were able to party guacamole style on Linden Avenue, so congrats. Thank you. We're excited to be back. Uh, tell us about the challenges you faced because the festival wasn't held the past two years. Things have changed a little bit along Linden Avenue. Yeah, there was a whole um, rethinking of what can we do to keep the energy and awareness of the festival and uh, keep people excited to be uh, still involved. Uh, we tried to look at a couple of things. We came up with a uh, virtual, which was great the first year. We, and that, you know, that kind of put a little Band-Aid on the wound. Uh, we looked into bringing something down to the state park the following year so we could control, you know, the density and keep it uh, safe through COVID. But that just did not pencil out for the amount of people that uh, frequent this event. So we had to kind of just take a knee on that one. And this year, we are back. Okay. Now, the changes I was uh, referring to are the parklets. Since the pandemic, some restaurants had to encroach out into the street a little bit to keep their businesses open and keep people safe. Uh, What accommodations did you have to make uh, along those lines? You know, the Avocado Festival is community-friendly and business-friendly. We did not want to push back on those uh, businesses that right now need those parklets for survival or you know, so what we did is we walked around and spoke to each of those business owners who are friends of ours and said, hey, can you do without it or do you really need it? And the ones that were really emphatic about needing it still to hit their marks and have the comfort of serving, we just allowed them to keep the uh, parklets up with uh, communication and, and partnership with the city. Uh, so we walked business by business. And uh, like with the nut belly, she put a major build out out there, but mm-hmm. she's going to do things to let people feel like they have a place to sit and relax and uh, have a breathing space. So it all worked out. So we had to reconfigure our commercial North, our commercial South, our vendor areas. And that took a financial hit because we weren't able to sell those booths, but greater good is what's good for the community and the businesses. So we kind of made some adjustments that way. And one of the uh, many things everybody's happy to see return are the carnival rides and stuff for families to do. And that was what came to mind for me when I was thinking about the parklets is that you might have to modify, you know, your space concerns a little bit for that. Yeah. Well, with the Ferris wheel, a Ferris wheel, if you see, uh, you know, something at the St. Joseph's or any other carnival, that has a festival grounds, then you're like, oh, there's the Ferris wheel. That's cool. But when you see it right on Linden Avenue, where you might've driven the day before, it's a whole different vibe. (laughs) And that's why we wanted to just have that as like, ah, how cool is that? So we only put one ride in there. We position it so people can look over the thickness of the crowds and, and, you know, and just get a perspective of what we're doing. And so that's cool. We're still able to put the, uh, the Ferris wheel right there. We did adjust some booth space prior uh, the past it, uh, but uh, right there, the Ferris wheel will, right in its usual spot. Fantastic. What is new this year? We see the usual fun stuff on the agenda, live music and guacamole, of course, but what what's new? Well, new is uh, 
What is new? That's a good question. I guess we've revisited some things that worked and, um, you know, we, we've enhanced the guacamole contest, of course, and the uh, strong arm contest is a strong person contest or it's a strong arm. And so it's male and females or whoever just going at it, which is really fun. We um, got rid of the president's party and made it more of a, hey, everybody's invited to this party. So what we're doing on that Friday night is we did not advertise that. So people are wondering, hey, what's the secret handshake here to get invited to the Friday night? <laughs> well, every Carpinteria is invited. So, yeah, we just wanted to keep it localized. And, you know, Carpinteria, we close the streets down. People have to figure out where to park those few days. It's kind of an inconvenience. So we want the Carpinterians to feel appreciated, the local growers, and, you know, our whole ag community to come on out on that Friday night. So all three stages will be like our president's party. We'll have some drink tickets to some, you know, and we'll have great lineup on all three stages, but there won't be a president's party. It'll just be, this is for the community. We're not inviting anyone outside the community. We didn't even advertise it on the website. We just did a kind of word of mouth and Friday night is going to be our locals rock, rock and roll night. And, uh, you know, Excited about that. Yeah, maybe there should be a secret handshake. You might want to consider that in the future. Yeah, you can come up with that. <laughs> or decoder ring. Well, we're, ta- we're talking about the music. It's always such a big part of the event. And with all these bands over three days, I imagine uh, you've got to get going pretty early on that. Yeah, you know, a lot. We get about probably 200 requests to play the event. Wow. And for this year, we'll, we'll have about oh, maybe 61 acts. So uh, a, a lot make it. Some of them are grandfathered in, obviously. Some of the big ones that have been part of the festival from the beginning. And they'll be back. The Upbeats and the Cornerstones and the Southland Lindens. Those guys are, are, are part of this community. They're a fabric of this community. So they're they're in. Then we try to mix up a 30% of new, new bands in. And we also like to launch the up-and-comers. So this band Ace Kid and Indignation, they're... Uh, they're, they're coming in uh, uh, both two new ska or uh, punky style bands. They're both going to start off on the main stages earlier in the day. And as they get uh, more experienced, they'll, uh, they'll play later in the day over the festivals to come. So it's exciting to feed uh, some new talent through our, uh, our stages. We also have some uh, guys coming down from the Bay Area. We have uh, Pat Nevins coming back down. We've got Phil Cody coming up from L.A. And we've got uh, a lot of... Uh, the Santa Barbara centric because it is back to the roots. The festival is back to the roots, but we do have people that have been part of this thing for many, many years and are coming back down to help us uh, get the party going and keep the party going. And that's like a, its own little sub staff, isn't it? I mean, there's a staff of people that uh, that engineer the the conduction of the event in general, but the music part of it, you need some pretty sharp folks just setting up that end of it. Well, the beauty is that uh, I, I'm connected a little bit in this industry, and then we've got a. Uh, what we want to do is come from an artist's perspective. We want to make sure when they arrive that there's a place for them to have a beverage, that they have really good equipment on stage. We provide backline gear on all stages. We've got great sound techs and great stage managers. So we want to, you know, because they're not getting paid a ton of money. They're coming here, but they're, you know, we want to make sure that they feel fully acknowledged and that we appreciate the music and what the music does for this festival. So uh, right there, you know, we, we do that. That's about, we're a volunteer committee, but we, you know, we have a paid staff administrator and then we pay for all of our sub services and police fire and all of those things, sound security. So it's, it's a substantial build and cost, but you know, we're all kind of good at it. We all care about it. You know, we, there's a lot of passion there. So every year we just try to make it a little bit different, a little bit, you know, nuanced 
Uh, speaking yeah. of the costs, I was at the city council meeting where the festival and the costs were approved, including for security and keeping the streets clear and clean. How do you gauge the need for those things? Do you, do you kind of have to let it happen before you know how much you need, or are you going by past festivals? I go by past, but also there's a saturation point. And a lot of times when a festival is known for attendance, that to me is not the proper way of looking at a festival. That's kind of like, oh, we brought in this amount of people and, you know, and they're proud of that number. To me, I think that's kind of the backwards way to look at it. There's a saturation point. It's like putting people on a boat. How many people are comfortable on that boat? And, you know, before you need life jackets and life rafts. Right. So I look at there's a tipping point in Carpinteria. There's a certain amount of saturation. When we get to that number, we have to just be uh, cognizant of that. So that's about how do we advertise it? How do we advance this show? And who do we want to really acknowledge and bring in? So we took out the um, ability to, not the ability to, but we decided conscientiously not to advertise past the Santa Barbara County. So that's what we're doing this year. We're bringing people back in. We're testing our systems again. We want people to be comfortable, and we don't, you know, we, we don't want a ton, a ton of people that overwhelm the town, and it's no longer fun. Okay, uh, I yeah. hear you loud and clear. Do you see the festival expanding in the future? We may or may not see a new hotel up the street, and we're definitely going to see a huge new complex of shops in the seven hundred block of Linden. You know, to me, I don't think the footprint, whether there's a hotel down or not, we don't ever want to deal with we thought about bringing the uh maybe at one of the stages down to lower lower linden avenue mm -hmm. on, but people partying going over those railroad tracks uh we need an ingress and egress to stay open during that whole time and for us to bottleneck that up by having uh, an, another uh, attraction down there to me just is not conscientious so i think our footprint will stay the same and i think you know we'll just make some adjustments that make sense and try to really identify the needs of carpentry, the needs of our nonprofits and service groups and businesses. And I think we'll just stick with that. We don't need to be bigger. I don't want to be bigger. In fact, I won't, I won't do that. I yeah. won't be involved in it if that's the direction. Yeah, adapting is uh, key, and uh, you are just the guy for the job. From, from your vast experience organizing events, not only here but all over the country, what would be your advice to somebody attending AvoFest for the first time? The thing is, enjoy yourself take a breath look at our beautiful mountains and our ocean and 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 just really take a moment to just be happy that you're back with your friends and family or making new friends and uh, that's the whole key of this thing this is this is just a community-based event where people can let their guard down leave their political deals at home and just come out and be carpenter ants and just be cool and enjoy some guacamole and and uh, camaraderie. <laughs> you got me smiling, and uh, and all signs point to another uh, uh, huge successful festival this weekend on Linden Avenue. It's been our great pleasure to talk to Mike Lazaro, a member of the board from the Avo Fest, and uh, just a key player in this in this wonderful event. Thanks for spending a few minutes with us, Mike. Hey, thanks for all you do, Dennis. We truly appreciate you, and I'll see you next weekend. The avocado. As you heard Mike say, AvoFest kicks off with Locals Night Friday, September 30th, with the rest of the world coming to Carpinteria over the following two days. You can get more info at avofest.com. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. 
Innocently they danced, innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Carpinteria is home to some of the best surfing and food on the coast, but it's also home to one of the largest cannabis growing areas in the state. At the forefront of the effort to bring us all the best and most objective information about this controversial plant is Cannabis by the Sea magazine, published right here in CARP four times a year. The fall 2022 edition just hit newsstands recently, and so here's my chat with publisher Melinda Bai and editor Amy Maria Roscoe from a few weeks ago. Melinda, Amy, you're both very good friends of mine, but I'd really like to know, how'd you guys meet? How long have you been friends? I actually first met Amy, uh, <laughs> it was an evening of the Carpentry, it was at the Community Awards Banquet. And John Welty won Carpentry. John Welty won Carpentry of the Year. My mother and I went. And let's see, how do I say it nicely? Well, we were loaded. <laughs> <laughs> the Lions, mother, my mother right? and I. Well, yeah, yeah. And the Lions Club was pouring the drinks, and my dad had been a Lions member for years, so they all knew my mom. And the minute we walked up, it was, oh, here we got the good stuff under the counter. You know? <laughs> I don't know how much longer later my mom said, you know, when John won the Carpenter of the Year, he said, Mom said, wake up the other party. I'm like, okay. You know, and get in the car and the Welty Ranch is at the, for me, it looked like it was straight at the top of the hill. Yeah. And it's like, Err. so get up there. Rincon and, Hill. No, no they're actually. High school. Yeah, oh, okay. High school. Okay. And I get up there and there's all these people that we know and here, I here's, I didn't even, I think you walked around the corner. We literally like smacked into each other or something like that. And I said, oh, hi. And I said, made some crack. And you said, you should write them. Okay. And then we turned around and went away. But I knew then her was, mom. Yeah. I knew Patsy or okay. had met her. Yeah. Because yeah. I was at the paper at the time and interacted that mom way. Mom was a big yeah. supporter of everything so local. So what year was that? I don't know. Well, when was it? 2000. Uh, probably at four or five, early 2000s. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then we got to know each other um, working the theater. Theater. When Peter yeah. and I were involved and Amy was volunteering and then she was, well, Amy was part of the original uh, advisory board for the theater, which I was see. a great idea in theory. Yeah. <laughs> and then obviously became friends and then um, when Amy was with Copson, you could probably tell more about that. Yeah. But I didn't know... I knew you as Melinda Bai. I heard about you as Melinda Bai. Mm. So I didn't realize that you were Pat, Pat, Patsy's daughter. Your mom was Patsy. Graziani. Graziani. Yeah. And it was at the at the theater. Because mm -hmm. I remember you wrote a letter to the editor at the paper. And I knew the name Graziani. So I didn't, but I didn't realize it was Melinda Graziani. Bye. Yeah. Okay, well, it comes full circle that now I'm volunteering at the Alcazar. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> Having just gotten here recently, uh, cannabis one of the hotter topics around carp, uh, from the money it brings in to the people who complain about the smell. So why don't we start with how Cannabis by the Sea magazine got started? Sure. <laughs> um, well, Cop Sun started. When did Cop Sun? A pre -pan couple of years before the pandemic. It's hard to keep it straight. And that was Tina Fanuki Frontado had the idea, and she called me, you know, and Leanne Anderson. I almost said Leanne Turner. I don't know where that came from. Leanne Anderson. And so we started an education company, like educate about cannabis and the lifestyle. And it's not a bunch of 
stoners with empty pizza boxes on their stomach. Right. And, and so, <laughs> and, and to in just a Copson was really great, and Tina founded Copson based on the fact that um, her husband Greg's uh, father was chief of police for Carpentry for years. I see. And Tina's been a huge advocate, as you know, of um, supporter of cannabis and legalization and et cetera, and but mainly education. So cops on focused on the education portion. They would yeah. do leaf learning classes that were hugely popular. Mm-hmm. And that I think you started in like 2017, and because mm-hmm. I was involved doing yeah. graphics work and bookkeeping and that kind of thing. And then in 19 is when the, well, the magazine. Yeah. The magazine was released, what, two weeks or a month after we went into yeah. lockdown. And the magazine was also Tina's idea. I remember one day she called me and saying, you know what, we need a magazine done. And I said, that's a good idea. I mean, she's, she, we all have tons of good ideas. Yeah. <laughs> we all take showers and have tons of good ideas. <laughs> but I, when she told me, I was like, yeah, that that is good. And so cops, so yeah, cops on started. So it. Tina asked me to do a mock layout, which was a lot of fun. The first one because I just got a, I pulled stuff blank off. slate, blank slate. I just got to make up my yeah. own magazine with ads that weren't paid for and weren't mine. But you know, it wasn't going anywhere except Neat. a perfect example. And and I think I think that kind of set me up for disappointment because it was like, <laughs> wait a minute, what do you mean we're not going to get fifty ads for you know? And, yeah. and but anyway. Um, so then Copson came, did the first two issues of the magazine. And then in the fall, summer of, I think it was summer of 2020. So we did two issues, Copson, and then Copson decided to close. It was, you know, with a pandemic, pandemic. we couldn't get anybody in for leaf learning, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and in all honesty, Tina was gonna let the magazine go. And I said, no. I really want it. There's, there's so much potential here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no magazine like us on the central coast of California. Um, we're not a high times magazine. We're about health and wellness and we don't certainly don't begrudge a high, but it's not our focus. Uh, so I said, we really want to take this over. And before I even asked her, I called Amy and I said, by the way, I'm not doing this unless you <laughs> join me because I can't do it. I'm, I can, you know, yeah. As my, my English teacher used to say, she said, you can BS your way through an essay. And I was like, yeah, I love doing that because it's just, you know, but that's not writing. <laughs> so uh, Amy said yes, and that's when we took over the magazines. I didn't realize that was quite so new. How much thought did you give to uh, producing the lovely print edition that you do do and and versus online? Because one is obviously cheaper than the other. Yeah. And you've gone to the yeah. trouble and the magazine is in print form is beautiful. Yeah. So what was that decision-making process? Well, I talked to my husband, Peter, about it because our LLC, Buy and Buy Productions, produces the magazine. Um, and the focus, the main focus was to get it out digitally and build our audience from there. We knew there was gonna be a cost involved with some writing, um, you know, Amy and I have realized that, you know, from day one, really, that it was a labor of love for a while <laughs> until it starts generating some real funds. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, well, I think we're printing more. Um, we're trying to print more. But yeah, it's just, just not cost effective right now to print that many. Okay. And currently, the print edition's at Murphy's Vinyl Shack. Murphy's Vinyl Shack. We do have some down at Sespe Creek Collective. 
we do send uh, on H- HPC yeah. uh, dispensary in Port Wyneme has some. We try to scatter them around. Also, in those that have been involved, uh, if they we did a big interview with them, we try to give them a supply. Um, we're hoping that, and we we're pretty sure we will have a great connection with Roots when they do come in, and we'll right. be able to have them as a good supplier. And I can see that things ramping up once once that happens. We're going to talk about that yeah. here in just a little bit. Yeah. I love the podcast. That was kind of an outgrowth of the magazine that came along fairly recently. When it comes to putting that together, where do you look for news? I do cannabis stories for Carpentry Valley Radio, and it doesn't take long to see. You kind of have to dig deep to find stories. It's not really mainstream stuff. Uh, it's not. I tend to look for, well, as far as interviewing. Interview? No, no. I mean, when you do the news oh, the, headlines, the that's about my favorite part of the show. I love the interviews, <laughs> but I love you guys' take I, on cannabis news. You got to love Google, man. I mean, it's oh, okay. surprising what you come up with. And every time every time we do one, I think, oh, I'm not going to find anything. I just tapped it all out, you mm-hmm. know, and... And there's some great websites. Uh, MaryJane.com is one of the good ones. Yeah. It does a lot of lifestyle stories. And, uh, and... subscribe to blogs mm-hmm. or MJ Biz Daily, and so things come through. And okay, yeah. I find that if I go to Google or any search engine and enter California cannabis, there's a world of stuff. Yeah, yeah. and you just have to check on it every week or so, and there will be something there. You do oh, have to always. kind of deep dive. You know, I mean, you're going to get a lot about legalization, statistics. And the source is important as well. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, it, mm-hmm. you know, that's critical, yeah. who, who yeah. you're getting the information from. Uh, locally, we are one of the focal points for the whole industry because of the explosion of cannabis farming since Prop 64 passed and how prominent Carpinteria is with that. And now we're reaching a point where almost all of the acreage set aside for cannabis farming in Santa Barbara County has been applied for. So it's about to become the status quo. And I wondered how you both feel about that. It's been a long struggle for normalcy. It's going to be a struggle until it's legalized and until people really understand the benefits, the full benefits of the plant, you know, that it's not 100% getting high. It's not. In fact, the medicine, the medicine part of it is actually greater, I think, and that's going to take over. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we see it becoming a little bit more mainstream. People are, you know, understanding, especially with, you know, hemp CBD versus um, cannabis, you know, there's... It's it's getting its way in. Um, Do you mean on the federal level that it needs to be? You, you said it needs to be. I don't. Know, yeah, before uh, it needs to be legalized federally. Legalized yes. across the board. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of just on a patchwork quilt, state by state basis. And I, you know, I was born and raised in Carpentaria, and there was a big stink over the Dutch growers mm-hmm. having flowers. Mm-hmm. I remember the same garbage going on then. It's going on now. This is just a different flower. Over the smell? Oh, it was the smell. It was the greenhouses. It was change. It's change. Okay. It's change, and we know how people feel about change, good or bad. I wasn't aware that the the flowers were painted with the same nasty brush at one time. Yeah, Yeah, they were. My father was a huge advocate for the Dutch, and now they're just growing a different flower. And we're also an ag town. Ag is ag, people. If it grows in dirt, it's ag. Well, I guess what I was referring to is, uh, from my uh, vantage point as a, a new carpentry, and I've been here a year, but I was in Santa Barbara for five years here all the time, I'm just hearing less and less resistance. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing more and more people resign to the fact that it's not going anywhere. Yeah, and I think there's also been um, a lot of work done to cut down on the aroma, and it has worked. And. I don't think people should have to have that stench in their home, and I think they have valid, a valid complaint. 
I don't necessarily think ends justify means or means justify ends. So, but I think people have calmed down, but they're still very, um, I don't, I don't know, calm down is the right word or maybe accepted it, but they're still two very active groups, right. coalitions to, who are determined to get rid of cannabis. And I think that like, it's almost like a sect. You know, it's like a reefer madness sect. Mm-hmm. Well, Melinda and I have had discussions about this, and I don't find it to be a stench at all. I find it to be a very pleasant aroma, and uh, frankly, I it's tough on the growers to have to spend all this money mm-hmm. strictly to appease people who don't like the smell, mm-hmm. and then they take the step of making claims about the smell that aren't true, and this it's like an endless mm-hmm. cycle of uh, another layer of regulation, basically, that's, that could be hampering the industry. But even then... The growers have been so proactive. They've done it. They've come up with the money. They are doing that. For my own personal experience, I remember I could go down to Via Real at the convenience store any morning at six in the morning, and that heavenly smell mm-hmm. would be coming through. <laughs> That's gone. Yeah, I haven't yeah, smelled yeah. it in months. Yeah. I seriously haven't. It, yeah. it never wafts up here where we are at the studio. But even in town, I seldom, if ever, smell yeah, cannabis I, anymore. I can't remember the last time I've had that. Like, oh, whoa. And now, is especially when you would smell it when it was foggy and a little warm, and especially in the morning. Right. Would, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I haven't smelled it either. Okay. Well, that's part of what I was getting at with the acquiescence. It's as though since the carbon scrubbing's in effect, since we're having less odor, I'm just hearing less rumble about it, and it mm-hmm. seems like the people who are opposed really were opposed to cannabis. Now that they've lost everything they could lose in court, and they hung everything on the smell, mm-hmm. well, now that battle has is mm-hmm. just about over. So where do they go next? Now Any they go care after, to offer? Now they go after the dispensary. That's okay. Yeah, and they uh, appealing every yeah. Every little thing. Well, I was invited to a gathering at the New Roots Dispensary a few weeks ago. I was Just over the county line from Carpinteria. (laughs) It was kind of a fluke last minute thing, quite honestly. It was was last minute. Sure, I'll go, you know. It was. Uh, But uh, I want to know what you think that means in terms of the proliferation of dispensaries in general in the county and what it means for the town of Carpinteria that it's just over the line, but it's going to be considered Carpinteria's dispensary. Well, the sad thing is Carpinteria financially will benefit from none of it. That's, That's what's true. really yeah. sad about it. Yeah. Um, and they don't benefit from any of the taxing of the, the growers because all of them are outside the county. They're in county, outside city limits. So they're not getting any kind of tax benefit from any of this stuff. Uh, Basically, Carpinteria is hoping that people will come and use it but then go spend money in Carpinteria on some other stuff. Yeah, well, I don't even right? know I don't if the thinking I don't think has taken that, that step. Yeah. I think there's a... a I think there's a it's there, but we're just gonna pretend. It's we're, not we're gonna there. we're gonna okay. deal with other yeah yeah. I, mean, the, I think it's been unanimous on city council, no dispensaries. Right, but I'm hearing cracks in that wall. I'm hearing that there yeah. is a little support here and there growing, and uh, you hear stories and people say that they heard one councilman say they might be open to it. Do you see the establishment of roots as maybe a, a big crack in that wall and? And then once the floodgates open and they do see how much tax revenue they're losing from not taxing the growers and maybe allow a, a grower to within the city limits. I, I don't see a dispensary going into city limits for quite some time. I could see them agreeing to another dispensary just outside city limits, perhaps on the south end here where we've got Mark Avenue, which actually has is a perfect spot. That's true. There's tons of parking. Yeah. Nobody can complain that it's too close to my school. No, it's an industrial um, area yeah. type you know, situation. It's industrial area. It, actually, I think it's a better solution. 
selection than that, but but it, that's a beautiful area, and yeah. it's going to be a beautiful building. And and it's, I was just thinking about this this morning because I know we've got an appeal coming up when a, one of the neighbors at Padero filed an appeal on the development. So at they, roots, at roots, um, there's going to be a September seventh hearing. They filed it with it's going to be the planning commission. Um, you can write letters to the planning commission. You can write a letter to Doss, and he will, you know, take that to the commission. But uh, it'll, it's still going to go through. It's just, it's just kind of a last gasp. I was uh, alarmed to hear during my visit that there was still yeah. uh, that kind of opposition, money well, opposition. And my you can some, bank on it. Oh yeah, and so, but my feeling, and we've talked about this, and we've talked about this on our podcast. I think we've even addressed it in the magazine. How many of those people who are vehemently opposed to a dispensary are doing it blindly? They have never been to one. Right. Ever. Right. It's pot, and that's all they need yeah, to know. Yeah, that's all they, all they're picturing is, you uh-huh. know, some dude hanging out with his dime bag, and, you know, then all the losers get whatever, whatever that, you know, that, that whole scenario they painted in their head. And yesterday, a good friend of mine had never been to a dispensary. His wife is suffering from a terminal disease, actually, and we've been fighting her nausea with CBD with patches and he needed more. And I, he said, well, I'll, I'll go get him this time. I'll go, cause I've been getting him for him. And I said, send him to Sespe Creek, which was the closest to his house. And I said, go in there. This is what they're gonna ask you to do. They're gonna ask for your driver's license. Give him that. You're just gonna sign your name on the little window. So now that you've, you know, your little electronic thing. And then they're gonna call a nice person out from the dispensary. He's gonna come out. You cannot go in there without him Without that person taking you in, mm-hmm. you cannot even enter that without proving that you're 21 or over. Yeah. So you there, and you can't even see the product. There is nothing. You see nothing in the window. It's not like, you know. So he said it was so great. This guy came out and brought me in, and he was so nice. And he asked me, and I told him what was going on, and we talked about things. And he didn't push. I said, why would he push anything on you? They're not drug dealers. This is not right. pushing yeah. you to do anything. In fact, they want to ask you, how do you really want to feel? And by the way, a good bud tender will ask you how you don't want to feel. Mm-hmm. I What's don't this for? Want to be high. I yeah. Don't, yeah. What are you using this for? Yeah. Pain. What? What? What specifically? Where? What pain? Are yeah. you? You know? Do you? He, they will ask you those questions, and yeah. and then you are pay for it right there, and out the door you go, and you cannot get back in unless you go through the whole process again. And I compare this, I tell people, I go, look, if you're so opposed to a dispensary, why aren't you dis- opposed to liquor stores? Right. Anyone can walk in a liquor store. Right. And when it comes- Kids can walk into liquor stores. Right. Because they sell things for kids. Yes. And if I may, uh, on consumption lounges, which are mm-hmm. here, being established all over the state in, in communities that are tolerant, including uh, Port Wainimi, but the law enforcement angle in opposing consumption lounges in some places is that- there isn't a direct enough line from the lounge to treatment. Oh, and cool. I was wondering how many treatment liquor stores have yeah, a line to treatment. From... <laughs> I don't know what you mean by treatment. What is that? Oh, help in case, you know, for this bad drug. Oh. You know? oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's it's you that know, preposterous in yeah, a way that is that is placed. It, it's a double standard. And yeah. like the it's liquor absolutely. store thing made me bring that up. Is yeah. Because yeah. You're it, absolutely right. There's it, no clear path. I'm sorry, when you go in buy liquor, do they also hand you a pamphlet for AA meetings? Yeah, yeah. exactly. No, that's what I'm saying. Sign for women if they're pregnant. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's yeah. state law kind of thing. Yeah. I find the the no dispensary in Carpinteria very Harper Valley PTA. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, 
Come on, counsel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Carpentry is victim of this um, checkerboard kind of mentality where communities can opt out and there's change in the air for that, mm-hmm. uh, requiring each community to at least have medicinal or delivery. There's a bill uh, moving its way through the legislature. But you would think that um, Santa Barbara County, having been somewhat progressive when you look at Lompoc, and like I said, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's patchwork, um, and Santa Barbara itself uh, has not deteriorated because of the advent of dispensaries and the one on milpas comes to mind because mm-hmm. there was such heavy opposition that oh this is going to really trash the area well um it pretty much stayed the same and there hasn't really been any impact also why i'm wondering how long till that mentality filters over to carpinteria and they realize it's not reefer madness when one opens up mm-hmm. it's going to take that it'll take that yeah. absolutely I can guarantee you a Greyhound bus station brings more ugliness to a neighborhood than a dispensary does. <laughs> I mean, and and remember the huge stink that went on about putting the BevMo on uh, on Upper State Street? Yeah, the old I remember Hall. everybody just fell apart. And I got into it with a woman at work at the time who said, oh my God, there's going to be people you know, homeless everywhere. And I said, have you been to a BevMo? Yeah. <laughs> and- you, have you ever paid for a bottle of anything in that place? Because I guarantee you... Ain't nobody going in there It doesn't have a wallet full of money. Yeah, that's true. You yeah, know? yeah. It, I, it just, you're right there, but what blows me away on that is... And the minute uh, it opened, it was just fizzled out like nothing. It's like it's a liquor store. Yeah. It, uh, they were up in arms about a liquor store in Santa Barbara on Upper State Street. Aren't there others? When there's, when there's what, eight bars on, the, on exactly. Upper State that have no windows? Exactly. The kind of bars that people are in. Yeah, I'm more worried about those than I would be a liquor store. Well, we're talking about the progress against that kind of mentality, yeah. at least, uh, uh, to keep everyone happy and, and, and make it a fair deal. Uh, the fall edition of Cannabis by the Sea will be here before we know it. Can you clue us in on what we might see, what you're working on? Um, no spoilers, just want to know. Well, we published September 20th. Uh, advertising deadline be September 10th. We um, are working on a social justice story that should be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this I think we'll focus a little bit more on that this time. We've got um, a good uh, last look. Yeah, it'll be fun. So, you know, it'll be it's I'm looking forward to it. And we are going to be publishing right before the Avocado Festival. Mm-hmm. So we will have a presence at Avo Fest for the opening night, which is going to be they're catering to locals. So we'll see. First night's yeah. always the best night. Yeah. It really so we'll is. only be there Friday night. Um, and we will have our goal is to have a supply of magazines to give out to everybody. And hopefully some swag. We'll see what we can come up with. But wow. We will have a booth. And our cannabinoid for this issue is the THCA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll be focusing on that. THCA is used to treat, right now it's used to treat a lot of pain, but THCA, in the simplest explanation is, THCA is raw cannabis. If you took a, an entire bud of cannabis and ate it, that's THCA, you wouldn't get high from it. It's, okay. It, you get the psychoactive effects when it's heated. Right, Right. Even when you cook with it, you can't cook with raw weed. Yeah. Right. You know, it has to kind of be pre-processed that way. Yeah. So. so THCA is what's used to treat. You were telling me about something very interesting about a pharmacy in San Ysidro with your interview with Paul Sullivan that you did on the most recent podcast. Paul Sullivan is a compound pharmacist and has developed uh, some wonderful therapy creams in the company. It's called Theracream. Uh, compound pharmacists are kind of a rare breed. You have to go through a lot of schooling to get there. And the la- one of the few compound pharmacies left in Santa Barbara, other than the hospital, 
is in Montecito, and it's San Ysidro Pharmacy. It's been there for at least 40, 50 years. Okay. And they're in danger of closing uh, with a lot of small pharmacies. And now, now, for folks that don't know, like I didn't, a compound pharmacy means what? Compound pharmacist is, a, he has the ability, he or she has the ability to make a topical uh, solution customized. So it could be a doctor has prescribed something for pain, but it's a different degree of painkiller that would be in this based on you know, and so all kinds of things. Dispensing. It's pills. not dispensed. Uh, it's it's uh, you can up the content of a certain drug. The mixture can be uh, custom. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yes. And okay. the, hence Paul coming up with his product where he could, you know, customize a mix of terpenes and CBD and lotions, etc. Okay. And what's the danger? Oh, oh, you'd said he was in danger of having to close. The What's danger the of closing, I think they were losing federal funding and support. I'm not sure. There was a story on the news about it, but he's he's got Salute Carpahal involved in trying to help now, him. Because of cannabis? No. Oh, no okay. No, just, just mm-hmm. because. And, and again, I uh, compound, it's important. And especially now that we're going to, we're going to start inching towards some kind of legalization. And I think more doctors are also embracing CBD. And if a, if a farm, you know, a pharmacist can in, can do that, can customize CBD or THCA ointments for people. Yeah, it's important to have that. Big around. step forward. Yeah. Yes, very interesting. Yeah. Amy Marie Orozco, Melinda By, publisher and editor of the uh, Cannabis by the Sea magazine. Uh, where is the online edition? You can find us at CBTS Magazine.com. We'll look forward to seeing you at the Avocado Festival, and I really thank you for joining us this time. To follow up, we did that interview in late August, and some of the changes we discussed have now come to pass. First of all, the new edition of Cannabis by the Sea was published on September 20th and is available now. And just two days before that, Governor Gavin Newsom signed a big stack of pro-cannabis bills into law, including a couple that we discussed during the interview. And that appeal against the Roots Dispensary just outside Carpinteria was denied, and now the permit goes before the full Santa Barbara County Board of Supervisors for approval. And now it's time for the Vinyl Say. Let's get the lowdown and the latest on records and record collecting with Kevin Murphy, the proprietor at Murphy's Vinyl Shack at 977 Linden Avenue in Carpinteria. Time for another fun-filled edition of the Vinyl Say. We are here at Murphy's Vinyl Shack on Linden Avenue, the best record store in the realm, and our good buddy Kevin behind the register with his wife Cecile, uh, always helping us out. Us vinyl junkies could not do without you. Thank you for joining us again, Kevin. Oh, I'm glad to be here. All right. In our many get-togethers here at your store, we've discussed which records are popular and which are usually available. I was surprised to hear you say that Beatles records, particularly solo material, can be a challenge to keep in stock, records and CDs. Is there a reason for that, other than that they remain the most popular music act in the world 60 years later? Well, with the Beatles, as far as the vinyl goes, you always have two editions of the Beatles. You have the Parlophone records, and you have the American-made Capital records. And the remasters and the reissues. And the reissues. And and, and obviously, we don't get much Parlophone records originals in here because it was the United Kingdom type of product. Uh, But with the Parlophone reissues, it's really the true uh, way the Beatles were... You know, producing the music at the given time. The whole record represents that moment in time. Our Capitol records don't don't do that. And sometimes up till Sgt. Pepper's, they started doing that. So when people are looking for a, a Rubber Soul or Meet the Beatles, um, that they're familiar with all the songs on that, when they can't get the vintage and they have to buy the reissues, it's it's a different song order, different song sometimes. So it's harder to find those vintage Beatles records, and that makes them more valuable. 
and more pricey and, and uh, tougher to find good copies where it's going to be a vintage always. Yeah, yeah. I, I recently found a couple of gaps in my collection and wanted to get CDs of a couple of McCartney albums, and you told me the solo stuff is very hard to keep in stock. It is. That, in fact, almost all the Beatles stuff we keep separately, and we put a, you know time together and sell them as a four-pack. Uh, we sell our CDs pretty inexpensively because we get them for, you know, people are just bringing them in by the dozens to us. And so we sell them for five bucks a pop, which is a single CD or double CD, you know, we just move it. And so the Beatles stuff always goes quick. Yeah. So we pull that out. And then a lot of the vinyl, the individual solo stuff, we just don't see a lot of it coming in. But it's also part due to the fact that some people just aren't turning that in. Yeah. A lot of the Beatles stuff is keepers. And, uh, and, and a lot of the, even the Paul McCartney stuff, where the stuff that wasn't well received when it first came out is kind of turned around and become very popular, like his first solo album and Ram, which were, you know, weren't hailed as his best, but now people go back to those all the time. Look, even Tug of War and Pipes of Peace and albums that people were like, what, when they came out, have gained respect and, and aren't, some of our flat out beloved. Oh, it really is. And, and George Harrison, I think, is also people with the, with the reissue of All Things Must Pass. Uh, Harrison's got a special flavor in everybody's, you know, as a, the underdog kind of guy, and his stuff is just really is beautiful. Yeah, and it really is. Yeah. Well, someone told me yeah, the Ringo Starr's got the most most uh, vinyl out there of all the Beatles. Is that right? Yeah, so, solo, yeah, most solo albums. So, but you know, even though some of his stuff is, is a lot of fun stuff. Oh, I love it, solo it, Ringo. I really do. It's also it's it's always a challenge to find that, but I know the one that's really hard to find for McCartney is Flamingo Pie, and I've yet to hear that record. Oh, uh, Flaming Pie. Flaming Pie. Yeah. Flaming wow. Pie. Uh, is that right? Yeah, and I oh, it's one cousin, of his best. And one of my customers always always been looking for it, and we we just can't seem to find it. Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, just to add a note to what you had said about people not bringing the records in, uh, I've been doing breakfast with the Beatles thirty one years, and I think the question and topic I get asked the most about is I've got these Beatles records, what are they worth? And and even people like with trashed records are disappointed to find that they're really not worth all that much. But I think everybody is like retaking their inventory you know Beatles records are just like everybody else's records based on the first edition first yeah, issue first that, that's the most important first mm -hmm. pressing because you forget the Beatles Sergeant Pepper's been probably pressed 10 times so each pressing you know drops the pricing down but when you get into that original pressing and especially original mono it's you know it's much more higher value than the other ones but it's about the condition it's always gonna be the condition of the, the sound of the record itself but first issues are, there's something special about always first issues. They just sound a little bit cleaner. We had a couple of Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced albums, and they were first uh, first issues, and it was like, wow. I just listened to my original pressing last week. It, uh, it's, no it, it's no the, question. There's a different sound to that, yeah. and um, and that's why people are looking for them when they can find it. But a lot of the young people, they just want to get Are You Experienced album and, and understand it. So Yeah. Yeah. Good. Have you ever had a butcher cover come through your door? Not yet. Not yet. We've got we we actually got a rhino butcher cover to put on the wall because it's it's one of the most talked about albums out there. And that's a cool product. It, it right really there. is. And a lot of people have heard about it but they've never seen it. And, and and when they see it, they go, oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> is that real? And, and you yeah. know, and the type of thing about the Butcher album is, is there's not a really definition of why they did the Butcher album the way they, they did it. So you have like four different, you know, versions of why they did it that way. And and, and, and just as confusing a story is how many of them actually got out and, and are available because there's another heavily bootlegged product. Oh, you bet. And someone told me, I'm not sure if I've read it, you know, on social media, but there's somebody that was in management, they discovered through going through his house after he passed away, he had a box of 
hundreds of the, those records with the cover on there over the butch pan. Oh, the pasteovers. Pasteovers with with it in there. And that's what's real pricey right now. That says if it hasn't been touched. You know, everything is now based on it has never been touched ever. And uh, and he had 50 of those. So those, <sighs> that wow. family just came into a little bit of change. Whoa. But I think that's just it. If, if people always ask about it, that's always a common thing. You got the butcher album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we don't have the butcher album. You yeah, know? Yeah. And, and But it's one of those albums that it, it, it's, it's a good album to begin with. Yeah. And it's fun. But it's got such a historical history of it, and and who knew that the the original cover with the, even with the pasteover would be was worth I think it's fifteen hundred dollars now for a, for a good pasteover. That's paste true. And I had one, and I've told the story many times. Uh, I bought that in nineteen sixty six, and uh, I had only marginally heard the story about the the original cover, and I realized I had one. So I started peeling it and peeling it and peeling it, and it you know didn't look that great, and I left it on my dresser and my mom saw it and thought it was trash and threw it away <laughs> i have forgiven her since there you go i <laughs> i had an uncle that had one and i had one at the same time and i was about 12 or 13 and he did it and, and it was beautiful it came out beautiful oh wow yeah then i did it and it really was a butcher album after i got yeah. done with it because it didn't go so well <laughs> how about the rolling stones let's talk about them for a minute how does their catalog compare in terms of of what you do are are their records consistently popular and compared to the Beatles, what is the give and take with that? Do people bring Rolling Stones records? In? Oh, we, we get them both in. Uh, with the Rolling Stones, you have you almost three versions of the Rolling Stones, from the Brian Jones, Mick Taylor, and Ron Woods. So you almost have three factions of people liking different stuff, and they're checking that out, or they're rediscovering Brian Jones stuff. Yeah. And the, with the Stones, they have so many kind of mini greatest hits albums, too, so you can get a lot of all of their good stuff. But they're uh, they're very popular. People are, are looking, still always looking for a good uh, sticky fingers, let it bleed, uh, beggars for banquet, and, and and the older stuff is very popular in the in the mono also. Yeah, you know, there's a clarity with the Rolling Stones that just you kind of just want to be in, you know, jamming at you full force with the with the vinyl. Yes, but you know, if I may, uh, honestly, it seems like their catalog over the years is a mess to me. I mean, you have your original pressings. For me, what were terrible remasters by Abco on mm -hmm. CD, and then they created their own label in the 70s, and that's a whole nother animal, and it's never really all been brought under one roof. Are you as surprised as me that there hasn't been an anthology, something that brings it all together with the Rolling Stones? Yeah, there should be. I mean, people are always looking for the classic albums. Even some of the classic albums, you know, depending on your taste, may not be classic to both sides sometimes. Yeah. So it would be done. One of the hottest albums we sell for the early Stones is Hot Rocks because it's got a great mixture of all their best hits. But, you know, it's always good to go endeavor into Aftermath. It's just a classic album. I bet you have a, a hard time keeping those in stock. That and people looking at for that mono. Yeah. It, the, and the British Aftermath. Oh, my. Oh, it is, it, that, that's the whole thing about it is, 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 is the clarity of some of these in their first editions. And even the um, Rolling Stones' uh, Gotta Get Alive. It's, it's, it's great. Yeah, and so if you're going to the different versions. Like I said, the Rolling Stones have three different versions of the Stones, and people like maybe two of those three versions for whatever reason. Yeah, for whatever reason. Yeah. Or, well, it's how old you are. 
different yeah. generations enjoy different generations of the Stones. Oh, you bet. Yeah, I, I can never even when the Beatles, my parents, they were full on board till Sergeant Pepper's, and then they were like, "What's going on here?" <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I think that with with the Stones, they're always a little bit more outlandish and and always. But I think that great music, and and I wasn't. Uh, I loved Mick Taylor stuff a lot. Yeah, and so, yeah, and no, that was a great era. It I, really it, was. It really was, and yeah. so I. But it's always you know you fun to to, to dip back into those different periods. Yeah, whatever it is, whatever who was the, the the members of the band, but I'm I'm always surprised that the I haven't seen a true uh, anthology album do something like the, what the Beatles are doing because yeah. it, it warrants it. Yeah, I almost think they've avoided it because the Beatles did it. I, you know, the Stones have always done it their way, you know, and but it be I think that it's time for a, a get back documentary on the, the Stones and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, it goes that... into deep. Got to think the demand is there. It is. It's arguable that stores like yours wouldn't even exist without the explosion of record buying that we saw in the 60s. It has to create a situation for you because those are the records that made records famous. Uh, but they're also the oldest. So I'm wondering if your supply keeps up with demand on 60s music, British Invasion, the top 40 stuff, and how hard it is to find good quality from that era. Well, it, it, that's our constant worry is to find the vintage stuff. As and we're lucky that we have a lot of people who are downsizing. We're a coastal town, so you're you come to the decision that you know you can't carry this other forever. And also, a lot of these same people, their kids aren't maybe interested in vinyl or they're minimalist. They don't want to be burdened with all these these vinyl because they know it, it's a commitment. Yeah. And uh, so they'll more people are concerned about their record being played forward. So there's always those people looking for that. And and through that, we get better quality collection. Uh, people who cared about their albums took care of their albums, and so that's a that's our best way to do it. And then sometimes we get people who have full-on collections, but sometimes you know it's it's always tough to deal with a full-on collection because so much of it is we have so much of it already. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and you get into the '70s and '80s, there's so much of it being you know presented at that time. There was an overflow of Moody Blues albums and even Linda Ronstadt albums. Yeah, yeah. So, but when you get into the older stuff, and we've got a customer once he's got a lot of uh, doo-wop stuff. Into a lot of pre, you know, Dion the Belmont's doo wop stuff, and the toughest thing about that is, is, is there's not a real big market for that as much. So that brings the price down. So you get into, a, you know, a negotiating to, to make sure they understand that, you know, this we're not going to move this at the price that you think we might be able to move this at because there just isn't a fan base for that as much as there is for Elvis Rock or something more current. It's it's good to know that you're the guy in charge here. You have a feel for. Uh, how good it felt back then to get that record home. I just got a copy of Red Rubber Ball by The Circle from you. Mm -hmm. uh, just a jewel of a record, one of those top 40 records that uh, is was bubblegum. It wouldn't leave your brain when you heard it. Uh, I'm just giving you props for passing along that vibe. Oh, I mean, you know what it's like to get these records. It isn't just like going into a Target or going into a store and there are records there. Uh, there's some heart and soul going on here. Well, that's the fun part when you see someone in the vintage section, or even the rock miscellaneous section, and they, and they pull out a record like Y and T, and they scream for joy that they found this record. <laughs> oh my! You, you know, <laughs> you know. So that that's the fun part because you know the music and the cover. It's got such a, a remembrance for everybody of a time that's long gone or, or a special time in their life. And it, I think it helps them get back into the vinyl. The fun part about the vinyl and that opens other doors to them, maybe into jazz that they hadn't, you know, partaked in before. Yeah, so yeah. It's a fun journey. And I, whenever someone gets that into vinyl, I, I tell them, well, welcome to the rabbit hole because <laughs> you'll be looking for stuff all the time. And that, that, that's the fun is the hunt. Kevin in Wonderland. <laughs> 
Uh, it's been real fun. Another edition of Vinyl Say in the books. And uh, we'll be back down at your shop here very shortly to find out, uh, you know, uh, the ins and outs of what's going on in the world of buying and selling vinyl. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Again, if you're in Carpinteria and you need that vinyl fix, it's Murphy's Vinyl Shack at 977 Linden Avenue. Something to Carp About is now available wherever you get your podcasts, including Stitcher, Podomatic, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We're sponsored by Pacific Prairie Productions, specializing in radio syndication and podcast production. Call 805-500-3144. Talk to you next time. I'm Dennis Mitchell.